You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Malcolm Nance, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Malcolm Nance is a retired Navy officer who had 20 years in the Navy and some years since then entirely engaged in dealing with terrorism. He has dealt with it in a number of uh, venues, uh, both including uh, looking at what has gone on in our own country domestically as well as operations, terrorist operations around the world, particularly in Bosnia, but most particularly in the Middle East. He has had long experience in both Iraq and other areas of the Middle East. He was actually involved in the operation which uh, we've often uh, uh, read about, the Tora Bora uh, operation, as I recall, Malcolm, is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he is recognized as an expert by senior military authorities as well as civilian authorities on the subject of terrorism, terrorists, how to identify them, what we should do about them. His most recent book of, I think it's four, is it not? Yes. His most recent book is a, a second edition of the Terrorist Recognition Handbook put out by CRC Press, and it appeared right uh, today as we speak, 17 uh, April 2008. Uh, it is a book that will give you as much inside knowledge of terrorism as I think anyone could want. Malcolm, welcome. I wonder if you could begin by telling us what has kept you in, and I'll call it now the war on terrorism, your entire career. Well, I, I think it's, it's rather fundamental. I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I uh, was a child of a three-war veteran. And um, it's interesting. I, I grew up a, you know, an African-American Catholic kid uh, in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And uh, it's funny because I, I ended up, uh, in, when I came into the Navy, in cryptology, of all things, uh, in foreign languages. And the first language uh, alphabet that I learned to read was Hebrew. Uh, in Yiddish, from Yiddish newspapers, which would be lying around. And uh, uh, what's interesting, though, is learning that and having friends who were, were Jewish, the, the entire history of, uh, of Israel, and, the, the, and at that time when I was a young man, the, uh, the Palestinian terror attacks on Israel were actually the first things that got me interested in that. And 
by the time I got to uh, university and uh, was heading into the Navy, the uh, Iranian Revolution in 1979 just fascinated me. So that juxtaposition, the two things, uh, that people would use terrorism as a tool for nationalism and this revolution that was going on in Islamic uh, fundamentalism just fascinated me. And somehow when I ended up in the Navy, I actually came in as a submarine warfare operator. That's what I wanted to be. But uh, as soon as they knew I spoke foreign languages and had actually could un understand the word cryptologic, uh, they tasked me out uh, to become a cryptologic technician, and uh, I was sent off to language school. Well, you're, you're, you're unusual for an American in that you do speak a number of languages. I notice uh, you speak, I think, French, Italian, uh, Spanish, Arabic, and Pushtu. Yes. These are not easy languages. I mean, that's an <laughs> extraordinary accomplishment. So uh, you obviously have been a, a great asset to the, to the U.S. military, but you continue to be one from your uh, consultancy. Let me go right to a subject that I know uh, uh, people are greatly interested in and you are an expert on. Would you tell us something about Al-Qaeda? Well, it's, it's sort of strange because it turns out that I'd had a long history with Al-Qaeda without really knowing it. Uh, the first operations that I was involved in in, uh, in 1993 uh, in Bosnia. Uh, and it's strange because I was an Arabic interpreter, who was, uh, but because of my rank, I was senior chief, uh, chief petty officer at that time. Uh, I managed other cryptologic resources, and it's something I can't go into, but... I had a lot of people working for me, and I was sent off to the Balkans. And uh, one of the things we noticed while we were there was there were a lot of volunteers from uh, of Iranian descent and Middle Eastern descent. And instead of being sent to Somalia, I was repeatedly sent to the Balkans. Uh, so at that time, we didn't know where this diaspora of, of people who were coming out for jihad were coming from. And then uh, we started seeing them pop up in Chechnya uh, after the first Soviet invasion of Grozny. Uh, and that all of these Arab volunteers were coming out of the woodwork. And then we realized, uh, that I, I stumbled across in the mid-'90s a, a website called the Azam Brigades, and it was literally spelling out that what we had known at that time as the Afghan Arabs, the Arabs who had fought uh, under the guidance of Saudi intelligence in the 1980s against the Russians in Afghanistan, hadn't quit when the Soviet Union left Afghanistan. They were actually going out and furthering this jihadist mission. Uh, and by 1996, they had had, we had clearly identified a leader in an organization name. And at that time, they were known to us as the International Islamic Front for the Destruction of Jews and Crusaders. Uh, they were not known as al-Qaeda. Uh, and it was only after uh, Osama bin Laden declared his holy war against the United States in 1997 and after the 1993 bombings that they were identified as the base of the Holy War, headquarters of the Holy War, Al-Qaeda al-Jihad, and short Al-Qaeda, and that became the operational name for them. And it turns out that is their operational name. They call themselves the Al-Qaeda Organization. You know, there are those who say, we have, we have so fixated on the person of Osama bin Laden, but there are those who say, if we were to find Osama bin Laden today, if we were to kill Osama bin Laden today, it wouldn't make any difference because the seeds of al-Qaeda have now been planted quite firmly and the ideas would go on. That's, Do you agree with that? Yes, I agree with that 100%. Um, we, believe me, if, I, if Osama bin Laden were to die today, and, and I would be more than willing to be the volunteer to do that, uh, to, to help him move on, uh, what we have now is a transition, and this is what bin Laden had always saw, 
his movement as, as being bigger than one man. We are now into what some people call bin Ladenism, or Peter Bergen calls Al-Qaedaism. And that's exactly what we've done. We've moved into, um, we've moved from a, a organizational philosophy, then a military doctrine in, in terrorism, and then a revolutionary doctrine. And now we're onto a philosophical doctrine of the organization as to what these goals of this group are. And that, of course, is they are not, by the way, I want to clear, clear something up for the audience. Al-Qaeda does not seek the destruction of the United States. They do not seek to convert the world to Islam. Their number one goal, if you want to put it into a strict political structure, is the overthrow of the government of Saudi Arabia. Because if they can do that, and they see them as corrupt, they see them as people who are not worthy of being the keepers of the two holy shrines in Mecca and Medina, and they see them as continuing a centuries-old corruption of Islam, and what Osama bin Laden believes in is not Wahhabism, which is that fundamental belief of, uh, of, of Ibn Tamiya, uh, of the Wahhabist movement of the 18th century. That's not what he believes in. He is a Salafist. And a Salafist is a person who believes in the original followers of the Prophet Muhammad. And he, they believe only that generation, the quote-unquote companions of the Prophet, are the only real methods of following Islam purely. And so what he wants to do is he wants to purify Islam. He wants to get rid of the entirety of, you know, the Seljuk Turks and every other major invasion that's come through Islam. He wants to take Islam back to day number one, technically, and act as a companion of the Prophet. And that's what they call themselves. If you look at these groups, they refer to themselves as the Brigades of the Companions of the Prophet, or they name themselves after one of the, the Companions of the Prophet, and they want to purify Islam. Well, two questions. One, um, there have been a lot of terms that have been thrown around about this jihadist movement, uh, Islamofascism, jihadist movement, jihadism, uh, Islamic fundamentalism. Do you have a, a term that you would use to characterize them? I, you just used the term Salafist. Uh, is, there, is there another term that uh, would come to your mind? Well, I, I'll point out right off the top, Islamofascist is, is, is a completely false uh, way of defining anything related to this. That's just a racist term, simply a racist term because it has nothing to do with fascism. I'm sure Mussolini is rolling over in his grave right now because fascism is a dictatorship of, the, of, 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 of corporatism, a dictatorship of the, of the far right. Uh, Islam is a religion of peace, and it really is, despite what people believe. What we have is we have an almost radical evangelical organization in, 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 in within Islam, and they are as close to a cult as you're ever going to find within Islam. And that's what I refer to them as, as a cult. Um, but they call themselves, and I go by their definition, which is Salafis Takfiri Jihadist. And Takfiri is their belief that they can designate anyone an infidel because if you are not following this pure path of theirs. So I, I refer to them usually as Takfiris, and they, they refer to themselves as Takfiris also. So... Um, <laughs> it's funny. I was, I was given a gift recently uh, uh, of a. I, I, I became a scout sniper uh, before I went to Iraq, and uh, 
and uh, I have this little shooting pad that I carry with me out in the field, and it says, totally terminates terrorist talk theories. And that's exactly what we're dealing with. We're dealing with these Salafist Takfiri jihadists who are really a cult. Do you think that the people who are carrying out so many of these activities in the name of jihad have any real sense of what the bin Laden cult, the cult you just referred to, is really about? In other words, are those ideas themselves, those, very, those, those pure ideas in a theological sense, and as you say, in a philosophical sense, are they really spreading, or are these other groups that are spreading uh, that are uh, just springing up in in Indonesia and Asia and Africa and elsewhere, calling themselves jihadists? Is that simply another form of sort of the the globalist phenomena of being either anti-American or anti the wealthy or anti the West? In other words, are those ideas really spreading, or are these other phenomena? simply manifestations of sort of angry people who are have-nots. I think you're on, on point with that, that some of these organizations that are springing up and being anti-American because of the invasion of Iraq, whether it be in Indonesia or whether it be in Australia or England, are just that. They are a manifestation of, of their hate. Most of these people, if you see what they, they believe, they are not takfiris. They are not jihadists in, in the sense that al-Qaeda is a jihad. Most of them don't follow bin Laden. But you could say the same thing about the Iranian Revolution. You could say the same thing about Hezbollah in southern Lebanon or a Palestinian Islamic Jihad. There are many different grievances out there which manifest itself in armed resistance or armed revolution. And they use the Islamic term jihad because that's a religious term for struggle, the, the, you know, the, 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 the smaller struggle, not the larger struggle. Or for them, it means self-defense, whereas al-Qaeda organization... They view themselves as a revolutionary organization with a theocratic base, with a religious base, which will help them transform Islam as a whole. They fully intend at some point, maybe a century from now, and I think if it happened in a century, bin Laden would be quite pleased that he would literally, I mean, the man has almost eclipsed Salahuddin in terms of Islamic history. I mean, he might quite soon do that. Uh, and so if he can infuse himself into the mainstream consciousness of Muslims, then he will be able to have his followers over time bring about them to understand, the, the community, the ulima, to understand just exactly where he would like to go with his philosophy. 99.999% of Muslims don't buy this at all. They don't. But what they do see, and, and I can give you a good analogy, my neighbor in Abu Dhabi is a very religious man. And, and I've had to live as, as a Muslim from time to time. It's a good operational trick. Uh, I can pray in a mosque. I, I can sit with the best of them, Muslim, Shia Sunnah. My neighbor is extremely charismatic. He runs hospitals. And I've sat with him and other real, truly religious Muslim scholars, and I have just felt the charisma pull me and go, my God, this is what bin Laden has. He has this ability to bring young men to truly believe the way he, ha the way he believes, uh, just as most really good, pure Muslim scholars have that ability to do that. They're very powerful because they truly believe from their hearts. And if you can follow that, 
you, 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 they can make you do or say anything. And I, I remember one time leaving this man's house and thinking, I could quite easily join Al-Qaeda if he had asked me. But there is good and there is bad. And Al-Qaeda uses this charisma, this, this pull, this network of people who are like that, not for real charity, not for the good of Islam, but to push this corruption of, of, of Islam and this ideology of cultural revolution and attacking America and in, murdering innocents because they have justified it in their own minds. And that's what makes them more of a threat philosophically, more of a threat in the information war than in the combat war. And I'm all about, you know, their, their, their ability to, 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 to bring lots of data and mindset into the minds of young men out there will be a generational threat if we allow it. I personally think we can get rid of it in a year if we actually were to concentrate ourselves. But that's what makes them dangerous. Well, you, you paint a very powerful uh, image of al-Qaeda. How are we to think of al-Qaeda in Iraq? Al-Qaeda in Iraq is al-Qaeda in Iraq. And this is our mistake. They didn't exist. There was no organization of al-Qaeda in Iraq prior to the invasion of Iraq. There was a small Jordanian group, Tahidwa Jihad, which was led by Abu Musab Zarqawi, fooling around in Jordan. And every once in a while, they would go up and they would meet with some Wahhabist takfiris up in Halabja, in the U.S.-controlled section of Iraq, the Kurdish-controlled section of Iraq, who were dancing back and forth between Afghanistan. But this is only a couple of hundred people who were creating these Islamic micro-communities where Iraqi intelligence couldn't get them. And believe me, these people would have been a threat to Saddam Hussein. I mean, Islam is a very powerful source of inspiration. And if a man wants to die for his God, you can't torture him into not dying for his God. You can't kill him. He's already dead. And you've sent him to a better place. So Al-Qaeda in Iraq formed after the invasion. Abu Musab Zarqawi brought his Tawhidwa Jihad group from Jordan, uh, moved them into Fallujah. They knew that Saddam wasn't going to win, so they just took all the weapons they could, created safe houses, let the Americans roll through. And then when the resistance in Fallujah of the Iraqi people started in April 2003, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, where they transformed themselves after a few suicide bombings, to al-Qaeda in Iraq. So by September 2003, they had invite, they had spoken to bin Laden, they had exchanged messages and said, we want to create for you the center of global jihad in Iraq. No need to have it in Afghanistan. I can get more manpower, resources, money coming here directly from Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Europe, than you could in Afghanistan. And bin Laden realized, I've just been handed a gift on a platter. Someone has created an insurgency, an occupation in the heart of of historical Islam, and I have 60,000 Iraqi intelligence officers and commandos already fighting the Americans. Now here's my group. We'll create all these little pocket groups, organize them, get them funded, get them manpower. Well, has then the American invasion and continued presence in Iraq fueled al-Qaeda in Iraq? Yes, of course. I mean, without any question, we're there. We, they are there because they are there to kill us. Nothing else. Their resistance to occupation, we are no different in their eyes than the Russians who had invaded Chechnya were. 
uh, than the Russians invading Afghanistan were. Bin Laden created a, a military organization called the Zero Five Five Brigade, which existed in Afghanistan for the purpose of fighting us the same way he fought the Soviets. He was quite disappointed, I think, when the small numbers came in and we used the Northern Alliance, essentially bought his allies. I think he was quite disappointed in that. And so, so began, a, a, he wanted a real jihad where he could do the same thing he did to the Soviets. It didn't exist until we went to Iraq. And I mean, I'm sure he prays very, very heavily every day to thank Allah for, for giving him what he couldn't have gotten with our invasion of Afghanistan. Let me just uh, uh, turn the camera around a bit. Um, you're an American. You understand this Eastern, what is essentially a Middle Eastern phenomenon of, of, of uh, the, jihad, the jihadists in the, in the broad sense, um, the coming into being of al-Qaeda, although I suppose uh, that could go back centuries if we, if we took, looked at the history of it. Do you see these ideas having a resonance in our country, in, in America? Uh, and I'm thinking... Uh, in several venues, in several uh, directions here. One is there are people in our country who are who are alienated from the culture. Um, there are people who uh, are economically disaffected from the culture. You have militia groups coming from the far right. Uh, we have uh, certainly in in our, uh, minority populations, you know, economic dissatisfaction, um, uh, dealing with discrimination issues that while we have uh, improved over the years has never been perfect. It's not perfect now. Would you see these ideas having resonance here in our own country? No, I don't. And I'll, I'll, I can tell you that is with another level of expertise. I have, I have a, a, a beloved sister uh, who has been a, a converted Muslim for most of her adult life since university. And she's almost 60 years old. And she is the single greatest source of knowledge on how the American Muslim community thinks. And, you know, she's, she meets young men going to mosque in Philadelphia, where she's from. And she, she speaks to these people. And she said, you know what? Our problem isn't the Muslims who are here in the United States. The people who come here come here to live here, come here to have families, come here to live their life. She said, the problem that we're having right here is the mosques that are being created by the government of Saudi Arabia. She said, those... Saudi mosques are almost jihadi mosques. And I said, what mosque are you talking about? She goes, not the ones in the city, the rich ones that the government of Saudi Arabia builds and funds outside the city. Because in their viewing of the philosophy, as the keepers of the holy shrines, they have to be more to the right than the right. But what al-Qaeda is preaching is so far around that it goes in a full circle, which brings it to a form of cultism. However, you can prepare people. You can lay the groundwork. But I don't see that within the United States, other than the, the occasional oddball. And remember, there is an American right now, a man by the name of Adam Gadam, who is wanted for treason, real treason, was from Orange County, California, and he is the American spokesman for the Al-Qaeda organization. And if Adam is listening, I have, I have a bullet <laughs> waiting for you in my next trip to Afghanistan. Uh, because, but... With the exception of these outliers who may have been people who were through mental illness or through their own personal philosophical choices 
go out and do something like that, the way Timothy McVeigh did the Oklahoma City bombing, it's not a popular philosophy. It is not something which will spread throughout the prisons uh, or, or spread throughout the mosque here in the United States, uh, which is why al-Qaeda chose what we call a special mission team, where they took clean-skinned Saudis, young guys who they knew were from extremely religious families and who had no involvement in terrorism, and trained them and then sent them to the United States as rich Saudi, you know, rich Saudi kids learning to fly airplanes and hang out and hang out at strip clubs. Perfect tradecraft to defeat our view of what a terrorist was or what a terrorist suspect was. Perfect tradecraft. They weren't in strip clubs because they were looking at naked women. They were in strip clubs because there is no other place that an intelligence agency could not penetrate. That's a perfect place to go in there and have your covert meetings. Because you would think, oh, rich Saudi out there spending money drinking alcohol, when in fact they are true believers actually using pure intelligence tradecraft to defeat us. But as far as Americans adopting al-Qaeda philosophy, not a chance. Some individuals, yes, they exist. You know, we've, we, we've uh, from the feedback we've gotten, we know a number of young people, uh, people going to college, graduate school, and interested in political science in those areas, are listening to our, to our podcasts. And I, I just, I'm, I'm so struck by our level of ignorance about this entire phenomenon. And I know that's something that you are concerned about, particularly as regards the, the young military folks and maybe the not-so-young military folks out in the field. What would be your word to both those categories of people as we near the end of our broadcast? I think that we're, the way that we've been viewing this, I think most people have viewed September 11th as more as a, not so much as a national political tragedy, but as a personal slap in the face to what they believe uh, their, their, how can I put it, that they, they view this country as, I, I, let me rephrase that in a, in a better way. They view Al- the attack on the United States as uh, an attack on them personally, and that's perfectly justifiable. However, What's happened since that time, and believe me, I was there. I was at the Pentagon. I saw what happened on television in New York. I've been up to the armory a couple of days after September 11th. I never want to endure that experience again, all right? And I will do whatever it takes to fight that. However, the, 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 the honor that we had in learning how to fight the good fight has somehow been lost between, I don't know, World War II. And we know horrible things happen in those wars. Uh, and today to where people think, okay, this horrible thing happened to us, now I can go on the battlefield, I can do whatever the hell I want. He's a terrorist, he's a non-human being. I can shoot him on television, and I've seen examples of that. We've had people commit murder, all right? And no, no accountability whatsoever. So the message that I would like to send is, is that you dishonor us if you go out there and you treat human beings as non-humans. Terrorists are just people with a grievance. There's a way to deal with them, either through weapons or through justice. But what you can't do is be judge, jury, executioner, and feel that the TV show 24 should be your guide on how to handle the global cultural uh, phenomenon that is terrorism. It's just not going to help us. You are actually enabling the enemy out there to defeat us in the information battle sphere. Malcolm Nance, it's been a... A pleasure and, a, a, I think, a privilege to have you here as our guest. Uh, thank you so much for your service to the country. 
Uh, thank you for your c continuing contribution in the form of the, of the books that you are publishing. And I know you are continuing to travel to Iraq, that you are continuing to write on this subject. And it has been a privilege for us to hear you this afternoon. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.